1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash
1: loss. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Thomas Aiello about his new book, Hoops, A Cultural History of Basketball in America. Tom is a professor of history and African-American studies at Valdosta State University, and is the author of several books about race and sports. Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So how did this book come about? What was your inspiration for this idea about the, the cultural history of basketball?
1: Well, you know, this, actually, this book is actually came about from a meeting I had with Roman and Littlefield, the publisher of the book. Um, they have this series that they do where the, where the hoops is in, and we were having this meeting about it and they were frustrated because they were basketball fans like I am. And they were frustrated that there had never really been uh, a book that tried to kind of draw the different threads together. I mean, the the historiography of basketball is, is great and amazing. And some of the best books in sports history are um, basketball books to be sure. But, but there was never kind of a broad overview book that kind of, Took into account both professional and college men and women, um, and in particular, black and white. Um, while there are tons of great s- studies that do a little bit of those things uh, and do so with a, a kind of a, a, a more nuanced academic lens, there never really been a broad general history overview of what the game looked like, a kind of a big portrait that we can start um directing i guess some of our more focused nuanced studies and so that was the idea and 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 hoops was the result
0: all right so let's we'll start at the beginning um with this concept of muscular christianity right Can you talk a little bit about that and and kind of the role it played in in the early years of basketball
1: absolutely i mean muscular christianity was one of the 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 dominant feature is not only of uh, basketball thinking, but of sports thinking in general, really grows, develops from the YMCA movement. Um, And the idea was, if you live in a country that is uh, religious, essentially, uh, or that you'd like to be religious, um, and your time should therefore be devoted to God, How do we justify endeavors that don't live up to the twin bills of American thinking, which is work and religion? If we're not doing those two things, if sports is something else, how can we justify that as legitimate? (laughs) One of the answers um, uh, among a lot of kind of Christian athletic enthusiasts was this notion of muscular Christianity, kind of building off that notion of your body as a temple. Um, we should be building better selves to better serve God. And so therefore, um, by developing robust calisthenics, by encouraging exercise, not only do we increase the physical health of um, American citizens, but we also increase their spiritual health because they have a better vessel in which to do those kinds of things. And so this really becomes the the cause celeb of the YMCA movement. And it spreads across the country trying to encourage people to exercise. And to do that, um, you need games that they can play that are considered um, uh, morally straight. There was a lot of worry uh, in the Gilded Age about the increased professionalization of games like baseball and boxing, which encouraged gambling, which encouraged drinking, and the pursuits of the big times, of course, horse racing as well, which had been there before both. The pursuit of those kind of more big time athletic events had demonstrated to a lot of people a moral degradation. And so the YMCA sought to try to fix that by creating amateur sports that would allow people not just to watch, but to participate themselves, to get physical exercise and to develop themselves mentally and spiritually. To do that, um, you got to come up with new games and, uh, one of the YMCA training schools, uh, in Massachusetts, um, developed a a course where the assignment was to come up with new games that people can play in a gymnasium setting. We want to use the facilities that already exist um, and kind of retrofit them to these new games that we can come up with. It was in that class that volleyball was created, a game that can be played – in a gymnasium with relatively little supplies, and it was in that class that basketball came up as well—a similar kind of game where you just need a ball in a gymnasium and um, everybody gets a chance to play.
0: It struck me in, in reading, you know, the early parts of the book of, about the early years of basketball, how quickly the the game spread, um, really around the country. Uh, you know, at a time, of course, when you know, we didn't have internet, and uh, information didn't move as quickly as it does today. Um, why was the Why was the game able to spread so quickly? Uh,
1: the answer to that is almost wholly the YMCA. I mean, the, we didn't have we didn't have the internet, we didn't have things like that, but almost every community had a Young Men's Christian Association, and as As those bulletins came out from Springfield and other places kind of explaining this game, YMCAs started adopting play in almost every community around the country that had a YMCA. And so people got a chance to experience it. And once they did, it's going to spread from there. Because it turns out that baseball is by far at this point the most popular sport in the country, but baseball is relatively expensive. You need you need bats and you need balls and you need uh, gloves. You need equipment to play basketball. All you need is a goal. And so, not only is the YMCA going to kind of promulgate this 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 version of basketball in gymnasiums that everybody in a community with the YMCA has a chance to see to play to experience, but also they're going to be able to take that experience out into the public because. The vast majority of the population, which is too poor to, to, to buy a glove, a ball, a bat, and everything else that you need to play baseball, much less to find space to actually play it, all they need is a ball and a piece of concrete, and, and they can play this new game. And so it's adaptability to various environments both physical and economic and the presence of this network of YMCAs is really going to be the the driver that moves basketball across the country so quickly
0: so you talked you talked a bit about the, you know the idea of muscular Christianity and and basketball serving as kind of an alternative um to some of the sports that were viewed as somewhat corrupt. Um, how did basketball make that transition from a, you know, a, a muscular Christianity pastime to a, a profitable
1: venture? <laughs> how did it become corrupt? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. It happens incredibly rapidly. Um, uh, James Naismith, who invented basketball, was was very much around to watch his, his dreams die when it came to basketball. Originally, there was no dribbling. Originally, it was all just you had to pass and stay where you were. There was no physical contact, and it was all amateur, and it was just to kind of revive you. And that goes away relatively quickly. Competition became... Uh, kind of the watchword of the day, as you might imagine with any sport, I mean, competition is going to end up starting to dominate. And if you have a game that everybody has a chance to play and that is targeted uh, at A, the middle class and going to the YMCA and B, the working class outside of the YMCAs in those urban areas who have the ability to play it, Pretty soon, they are going to start competing. They are going to want to win. They're going to modify the rules to uh, allow motion and physical contact. And that is going to lead people to want to watch. The, the, you know, one, of the, one of the great problems for uh, the muscular Christianity movement was is that they were building these games in particular so as not to drive heavy competition. So as to drive fun and calisthenic exercise without competition, the problem is when you make good games, people are going to want to watch them. And if people are going to want to watch them, all of a sudden competition becomes that more, much more important because people are going to want to see their favorites win. And that happens with basketball incredibly quickly as more and more people go to watch basketball rather than just to play basketball. And it won't take long for people to realize, well, wait a second. If people are coming to watch, people will pay to come watch. And so professionalization um, happens incredibly rapidly. Within the first decade of basketball's creation, people are playing for money. um, And there is a version of professionalization added to which when basketball is growing in particular in these urban environments where there is a lot of, um, poverty playing a game for money is going to be almost a fait accompli as it's catching. The game is catching on in particular with a group of people who are looking for ways to be able to survive, to make more money. And so the, game that starts off as this kind of middle-class effort at spiritual growth ends up becoming with relative alacrity a working-class game that is devoted to physical competition and ultimately to pay for play.
0: Right. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know if you heard about this book. I just read an excellent book, um, actually had the author on, on my podcast. Um, uh written by Dan Grunfeld and it was about his father Ernie Grunfeld right. and, and his basically the family's legacy. Ernie's parents um survived the Holocaust. And um the, the game book is called By the Grace of the Game. And Dan talks a lot about how the game really, you know, helped elevate his family in this country. And he talks a great deal about how Ernie his father Ernie came here to the States when he was nine years old didn't speak a word of English you know didn't have really any money in his pocket and but showed up at the playground and started playing basketball and basketball was the way that you could make friends and could gain some status in the community and and he was um, he it's really how he learned how to speak English um, and and it was very in- interesting from that point kind of a means to assimilation into this, uh american christian society um i don't know i just you you kind of got me what you're talking about i i I kind of got off on that it it was
1: that's uh, absolutely right i mean we often we often think of um we often think of these terms especially when we think about um the transition from middle classness to working classness as as simply an urban phenomenon or a racial phenomenon the reality is that the vast majority of immigrant groups in the country were looking for new ways to assimilate, and they were often populating a lot of those neighborhoods in urban cityscapes. And the Jewish population in particular took to basketball um, as a way to inculcate themselves into a society that often was hostile, um, especially coming out of that muscular Christian mode, which was very much emphasizing um, a very different religious ethos. And some of the most earliest, some of the earliest most successful professional teams were Jewish teams, um, and Jewish basketball became incredibly important. Uh, not not just as a way to to make money, but you're right as a way as a a way of assimilation, um, as a way to have positive contact with the rest of society, and to thereby. Uh, Lessen, I guess, the difference, the perceived differences between the Jewish community um, and other communities that surrounded it in those neighborhoods,
0: right? And particularly, as you noted, in in those urban settings, for economic reasons, because you know, I mean, like Ernie Grotfeld grew up in 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 Queens, you know, in an urban neighborhood, and he just walked a block down to the local schoolyard and there was a basketball hoop, right? There was but there was no, you know, there was as as you noted, there was no uh there was no space there, certainly for a baseball field or even a football field. Um and he certainly didn't didn't have the money to buy the equipment to play those other sports. So um it's really interesting um putting your two books together to kind of see how that how that process worked for people.
1: Yeah. I mean one of the great the one of the great early Efforts of um, the game of basketball was was just access, you know. I mean, I mean, whatever the rules were, whatever the class conflict was, basketball gave people access in a way that football and baseball and boxing just really didn't. If you wanted to box, you had to be a member of a gym. If you wanted to play baseball, you had to have all this equipment. If you wanted to play football, you probably needed to be in college and. Those kind of things that just regular working class people didn't have, that the immigrant community didn't have. Basketball just needed a circle and a ball. And it really grows because of that access. Now, I, I will say that that later on in basketball's history that access ends up creating problems because it is going to almost immediately associate the game with urbanity, with urban poverty, and therefore it is going to turn off a lot of people and disallow it from from growing in certain directions at times in its history. Um, because of those associations and the bigotry associated with immigrant groups and inner city communities. But in its early stages, you know, just giving people the chance to play um, was its biggest growth factor.
0: Right. And along those ideas of, of, of access and, and urban neighborhoods, of course, we have to get into the racial issue. Um, how did... How did the game develop and spread within the African-American community?
1: Well, that access was certainly part of it. Um, And in the early days, um, the YMCA movement uh, did have segregated YMCAs. They did have YMCAs uh, that uh, ministered particularly to inner-city Black communities. The game gets going there. Um, Many of the people involved in the YMCAs are also going to be involved in physical education departments in public schools and what ultimately will be HBCUs. And they're going to start picking up the game as well as something that they can add to their curriculum relatively easily, because again, all you need is a ball and a gym, which is most people have that already. And the game is going to grow in those urban neighborhoods it's going to really take off. I mean, so at the time that the basketball is being created in the 1890s, we're just starting to see the birth pangs of the Great Migration. Um, it really is going to start in earnest in the teens during World War I. And by the 1920s, what was a predominantly rural southern population, uh, Black America, is going to have this kind of large outsized presence in northern urban industrial hubs, right in those spaces where basketball has grown over the past two decades. And in the same way that the Jewish community is going to be able to see this as an opportunity for themselves, the black population is going to do the exact same thing. You're in a new space. Um, It very much is very like immigration. You're in a whole new world from rural Georgia to urban Detroit or Harlem. And all of a sudden, you have this opportunity to connect with others, to play these games, to do these kinds of things. And so basketball is going to take off. Added to which, during the immediate post-World War I period, there are jobs available. I, I think there is this kind of myth about the roar of the roaring 1920s, where Everybody's doing really well, and the economy is so great. The economy was great, but everybody wasn't doing well. But those migrants, even though they never broke the poverty line, were able to have consistent paychecks, they were able to have jobs, they were able to have free time, probably for the first time in their lives, and they were able to use it playing games. Pretty soon, we see the exact same thing that happened in the late 1890s early aughts where black patrons want to watch them play. And in the culture of the 1920s, which is the the decade that we get our first sports celebrities, when we get um, uh, a lot of of emphasis on these kind of games, I mean, that is is the, the, the kind of the glory decade of the early Negro leagues. We start to see a version of that spring up in the black community built largely around um, nightclub culture from the Harlem Renaissance Mm -hmm. and the corresponding, I guess, Chicago Renaissance. We see these nightclubs, which have these large floors, parquet floors, um, where people dance and everything else, but they also like to watch sports. And so basketball, a version of professional basketball, starts to be played in the Savoy Ballroom and at the Cotton Club, and at these places where they have these floors. And so there are spaces, there's availability, and there's people willing to pay to watch. And all of a sudden, the Black population not only adopts basketball as this game of, again, a version of assimilation, but also takes it and makes it professional, just as white players had done in the late 1890s. Because they have the opportunity, and because they have a population with a little bit of disposable income and a little bit more time, who actually are interested in watching them play, right?
0: And how did um, I was very interested. I, I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, as I said, I'm a history of the game. I, I, I thought that um, I didn't know about William Pop Gates. Um, I didn't know that he played in the first season of the BAA. You know, I, I had always heard that. Uh, it was you know Earl Lloyd and Chuck Cooper and and uh, Sweetwater Clifton who who integrated the NBA, but I guess technically it wasn't the NBA at that time. But I wasn't familiar with with um,
1: William. And I Pop think Gates I think story. I think you're not totally wrong there, though. I mean, I think I think the fact that Gates is an outlier, that he is this exception, does preference those later people as actually integrating the game, but but the fact that and I should say that, I mean, that goes back to the 1920s. There are only so many teams you can play that the that the Harlem Globetrotters can play um, in, in a community that, again, is experiencing a, a minimal roar, but the 20s aren't really roaring for everybody. And so these black teams versus white teams was not rare um, in the professionalized world of northern urban basketball. Um, from the 1920s forward. The Harlem Globetrotters played tons of white teams all over the country. That was one of the draws uh, of coming to see them play. And so the idea that Pop Gates could um, become a professional on a white team in the precursor to the NBA was n- unique, but, but there was precedent there. Um, it was... Because of the basketball's history and because of its associations with urban neighborhoods that often were integrated with various ethnicities and um, national origins, it wasn't seen as totally bizarre, I guess, a- as it might have been in other other venues.
0: So, you know, many people not, may not know this, but of course, when in the very early years of the NBA, uh, college basketball was much more popular than the pro game. And, and kind of the, the epicenter of the college basketball world in the late 40s, early 50s was New York City. Um, why, why, was, why was the college game more popular than the pro game at that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, the college game is going to be more popular than the pro game until the 80s um, <clears throat> at least, and maybe not until the 90s. Um, colleges directly benefited – from the YMCA ethos, all had gymnasiums, all taught a version of muscular Christianity in the early century. And so as basketball spread across the country through YMCAs, the physical education teachers that YMCAs are teaching at schools like Springfield are going to go out and become directors of physical education at colleges around the country. And when they do that, they're going to bring basketball with them. All schools have gyms. They all need physical activities for their students to do. They would prefer that they do them in that kind of muscular Christian vein. And so these schools are going to create basketball teams, not originally for big time competition, but instead as part of that ethos, as part of the physical training to accompany the mental training of their their students, pretty soon though, that is going to go the same way we've seen everything else go, and people are going to want to watch. People are already by this point used to attaching themselves to colleges um, for football and seeing themselves reflected in the the glory of a given football team, and they want very much to participate in that in basketball as well. And so these teams start playing one another. And again, by the 1920s, college basketball becomes big business. It is not, um, to be sure, college football, uh, but it is important. And it does start to dominate uh, the collegiate sports calendar after the football season is over. And it only grows from there. Meanwhile, Pro basketball in those decades, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, has a lot of difficulty. There are several different professional leagues that start up, but fail, start up, but fail. And pro basketball never really is able to catch on. That being the case, basketball is going to be associated in many minds around the country with college, Same thing that happens in football. The NFL starts in 1920, but it doesn't really get going very well. And it's always seen as something less than college sports, because by that time, football had already been seen as a college game. And so professionalization was the other, unlike baseball, where professionalization came first. And so therefore, college baseball was kind of the other thing. And so it didn't catch on as well. And so... College basketball grows in those decades, facilitated by the National Invitation Tournament and ultimately the NCAA Tournament, which is going to grow the game exponentially. But at the same time, it still has those urban roots. And so the colleges that are going to be the best at basketball are either places that received um, YMCA physical education teachers because they knew the game best. Or colleges that are in urban settings because they are in the hub of where basketball has grown the most. And so while we do see outliers of, of, of college basketball greatness at places like Kansas and Kentucky and Indiana, all of which are kind of – their programs are created by YMCA people – The vast majority of great teams are centered in these urban areas. The hotbeds of college basketball are New York City and Philadelphia, uh, where there are lots of colleges um, and where there is this long history of urban basketball before college basketball ever really got started. And so those are your kind of two hubs, the urban schools and the YMCA schools out in rural areas. Learn more at marines.com.
0: And as you alluded to, of course, the the growth, um, the growth of popularity and, and, you know, money being poured into college basketball led to a great deal of corruption. Um, Yeah. And and so how have, I mean, what have been some of the major concerns about corruption and how have the governing bodies of college basketball attempted to curb that corruption?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, Part of the, I mean, the, the, major sca- the major scandal in college basketball happened in a very interesting way because while certainly the money flowing into college basketball does drive corruption, the reality was that the big scandal that rocked college basketball came particularly because that money wasn't going down to the players themselves. That for all the money that was being generated from college basketball, the players were living hand to mouth. And, um, in 1950, um, gambling, uh, concerns in New York, many of them associated, uh, with organized crime began convincing college basketball players to point shave, to, um, control, uh, the, the amount of points by which a team won or lost to, to ensure a betting line and to make money for certain people. Those players didn't do, I don't think probably would have done that had some of the money flowing into college basketball flown to, uh, to them. But since it didn't and they were broke uh, a lot of them chose to do it. And, and so that, is going to end up generating a lot of problems. There will be the 1950-1951 college basketball betting scandal is going to pretty much destroy New York college basketball. You mentioned that New York was kind of the hub of college basketball. Uh, Long Island University, City College of New York, NYU, were all Manhattan College were all major powerhouses. And they were taken down by this scandal, especially City College of New York, which was the best team in the country Uh, by far. And they are taken down by the college betting scandal. um, As this is discovered. And the NCAA, I should, I should mention too, that other places hit were hit too. Bradley ends up getting uh, uh, destroyed by this. Kentucky ends up losing a year of play because of this uh, and really tarnishes their reputation and Adolf Rupp's reputation in the process. But, The NCAA is loath to really fix this because their argument is going to be, well, this scandal was caused because amateurs didn't like being amateurs, but we are an amateur association. It's not our fault. The problem with that is that so many of these coaches knew what was going on. They knew that players were being paid. Um, And even without the betting scandal, there were other kind of smaller scandals throughout where players were receiving cash to play for a certain team, particularly at places like Kentucky, and it is going to tarnish those reputations. And the question was, so what do we do about it? Do we start paying players or do we add harsher penalties to schools who participate in this? And they come up with various efforts and fits and starts. In the 1940s, they have what became known as the sanity code, which ended up being kind of a capitulation and said, okay, well, we're not going to let um, people pay players, but we will let them have athletic scholarships, and we will let them pay for room and board, and we will let them do things like that if they have an academic, if they have a financial need. That pretty much doesn't work because financial need is is too broad, and so then they say, "All right, well, we'll just let them have athletic scholarships altogether." And you can you can't pay them cash, but you can pay them in dorm rooms and tuition and meals and things like that. And none of it ever works because there are scandals all the way through co- throughout college basketball. We still. Uh, get scandals in college basketball. I mean, we've had just in the last couple of years, we've had so many uh, assistant coaches arrested in college basketball that uh, it could fill a county jail. So they've never really had a good answer to these problems because they are walking this fine line where they are profiting off of the free labor of, uh, of these young people. It always ends up, Leading to problems when you have essentially a professional game being played by non-professional people.
0: So I want to go back to race for a minute because obviously that's an uh, an ongoing theme in the book and and in in the game of basketball. Um, and you know there, there's going back to you know right after integration in the game the the unofficial quotas that teams had. Uh, up until, you know, in, in the 70s and, and early 80s, there was concern about drug abuse in the league. And, and um, uh, you know, more recent, we had the malice in the palace. There have been numerous events and um, periods in the league where there's been concern uh, among league owners. And I, and I would say the NBA itself, that there is a perception that the league is too black. And I wonder what you think. Was that? perception either in the past or today was a legitimate one in and i mean that from obviously there's nothing wrong with having an all-black league i mean from an from concern about from an economic concern was was it ever really was it ever a legitimate concern that the perception of the league of being too back black would affect the bottom line
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we live in a country that has largely defined itself by race, and the vast majority of people who are attending these NBA games are white, upper-middle-class people. I mean, the idea, the NBA wrestled with this all the time. I mean, and it wasn't just them. Uh, there was a very famous uh, editorial, and not really an editorial, but a, uh, an in-depth kind of article in Sports Illustrated about the NBA's race problem in the 1960s um, about Turning off white fans because so many of the players were black. And on its face, it just seems gross and racist to even think about that. But they did worry. Basketball is different than football. Football, you don't really see the people, they have helmets on. They just look like machines out there playing a game. Baseball, they're wearing hats um basketball you are right up next to the people you can see them we are far more we are far closer to their personalities and it was assumed by the league that having the best players was important but if too many of the best players were black then they were going to drive away their larger customer base and i mean to the point where they that's the reason why the NBA expanded from 11 person rosters to 12 person rosters. I mean, the idea was let's have one extra seat at the end of the bench to where we can at least have one white dude there. He might not get to play, but at least we'll have a white dude on the team. I mean, so I mean, they very much were constantly thinking about this and worrying about this in the 1960s and 70s, and that does not go away. I, Valdosta um, uh, State is in Georgia. I live in Georgia. My team is the Hawks. And we had our own version of this like three years ago, where we had to fire our general manager, Danny Ferry, because he was worried that too many black fans were coming to the game, and it was making white fans not want to come anymore. I mean, which It sounds crazy uh, in this decade that something like that could happen, and yet it demonstrates that those fears haven't totally gone away. We can see it about a decade ago. You mentioned the malice in the palace. You, You can see it with David Stern's edict that says, all right, to try to fix our image, we're going to make everybody wear collared shirts to their press conferences, um, which is a decidedly white thing to do. We're gonna make them dress like white people uh when they go to press conferences to to soften our image instead of just letting people dress however they want. And so this kind of thing really really has never gone away. It's always been a constant concern of the NBA.
0: You mentioned David Stern, and you know, really under his guidance um in the nineteen eighties. Um, I don't want to put it all on him. I mean, his guidance, you had, you had uh, certainly the, the, the um, dissemination of cable television and some very marketable stars in Magic Johnson and Dr. J and Michael Jordan. But at that time, there was all those forces together kind of placed more of an emphasis on, on the individual. And I think there was a shift in the way the NBA and the, and the networks marketed The league, um, more so, um, you know, through the individuals. Um, How how did that marketing shift impact
1: the culture of basketball? It impacted it greatly. I mean, and it really start. David Stern allows that to happen. He really isn't the driver behind that, though. It is corporations who are the drivers behind that, realizing that because you have so much more of an intimate relationship with the players in basketball than you do in other sports because of the closeness, because of the lack of headgear, because of those kind of things, that those players were going to be incredibly marketable. It all really stems post 1979 from the NCAA championship game between bird and magic, Um, and those two players coming into the league and realizing that we have these marketable stars that everybody knows and we can start using them in advertisements, the NBA realizes, all right, well, let's ride this train. I mean, we, this, this might as well be what we do now. Um, If it's hard to get people to, to root specifically for teams, let's get them to root for individuals. We have this advantage, over the other sports. Let's, let's leverage it in some way. And they start to do that. Magic and uh, Larry Bird become the kind of these two advertising icons in the 1980s. And they are going to essentially set up um, what will end up becoming Nike's Michael Jordan campaigns that end up kind of changing sports forever. Um, And it's, it's done good, and it's it's done some some bad stuff, I think, as well. Um, until that happens, NBA Finals games were tape delayed. I mean, they, they weren't even played live. Until we start to see, uh, on television, until we start to see the marketing of individual stars, we don't even get live NBA Finals, much less the playoffs. They weren't even on TV. And so it has driven popularity to the point where those of us who just like to watch the games have access to them in a way that we never had before. The NBA was always lagging behind the other major sports. I mean, if you can't even get your finals broadcast live on television, that's a problem. And that only changes because people wanted to see the Showtime Lakers. And they only wanted to see the Showtime Lakers because they had these stars that people knew. And so it opens up access to the game to more people. That is certainly important. On the other side, um, it also, in some minds, limits what basketball really is, limits what it is supposed to be, uh, the ultimate team game. Wherein, you know, in in football, you're driven by whether or not you have the best quarterback. In hockey, if you have one good goaltender, you can compensate for all these other losses. In baseball, one good hitter or one good pitcher can change the game. Basketball is ultimately the, the, the team game out of all of those where it requires a team to win. And yet, it is the one sport that markets individuals over and against the team on a regular basis. And that's going to lead to higher salaries, which is going to end up leading to various union disputes and lockouts along the way. And ultimately, it's going to lead to the problem that we have today of stars joining super teams and creating a non-competitive play. So. It is certainly good in some respects, but in others, it has caused problems that the league has had to deal with.
0: Of course, we can't forget about the ladies. Uh, you talk a great deal about the growth of of the women's game in the book. Um, Absolutely. At, at the amateur at the, at the collegiate level, at the pro level. And as you note, there were a number of attempts to form professional women's leagues, which didn't really work out. Uh, why do you think the WNBA was able to succeed where the other leagues felt?
1: The number one reason for that is because it was attached directly to the NBA. Um, And the NBA was willing to kind of take that on knowing that it was going to suffer financial loss for several years, but that it was worth it to kind of make that go. Women's basketball always had, I mean, again, you can see, women's basketball was going to be seen as a perfect vehicle for muscular Christianity because if the idea is non-competitive play and developing your body and your spirit and everything like that, then that seems just right for the attitudes of women of the early 20th century, the attitudes to me towards women in the early 20th century. At the same time, while that's going to happen, it's also going to create this, Real barrier to women being able to move into professionalization because they are seen as the ultimate arbiters of that kind of moral spirit of the game. And so it's going to be that much more difficult to see them as professionals. And so you're right, these leagues do fail early on, largely because they take early losses and they're not able to recover from them. But when the NBA decides that it's worth investing in women's basketball, even if it means having a couple of years of losses, then that is going to be the driver that's going to allow the WNBA to move into financial solvency because it takes a few years to get off the ground. But once it does, it turns out the women's game has their own stars who are just as good. And early on, you know, uh, you, think, you think of Cynthia Miller and, and and Cheryl Swoops and some of those players who are going to end up kind of driving the game forward, again, getting advertising uh, deals, following the same marketing plan that the NBA does and allowing the NBA to have a year-round presence on television. So even if the WNBA in its early operation is losing money. The NBA still gets professional basketball on television in its off months. And so there's always going to be a basketball product professionally year round. And it is their willingness to cut and David Stern, to his credit, I mean, there's a lot of bad things to say about David Stern, but to his credit, he really championed this and, um, uh, was willing to take the financial hit to make it work in the long run. And certainly it has. And now the NBA creates some of our, our biggest stars in sports.
0: Why do you think the WNBA has been, uh, they've, they've been so, so much at the forefront of a lot of the, um, political movements in sports, um, the, the protest movements in sports. What do what do you think's behind that?
1: They're just, they're just the best. Um, the WNBA has really embraced those kinds of things because the NBA, the WNBA, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to say this cause I don't want it to sound bad because I am a big fan of the WNBA. Uh, but the WNBA is a niche market. Um, And they know that their audience is receptive to those kinds of messages. They are able to benefit from the fact that the broader sports population, which tends to be white, male, and conservative, isn't their audience. The main audience for the WNBA is female. It is um, middle to lower class. It is, leans more to the political left. And so they have an opportunity to make these vital messages heard without alienating the core audience that they have. When when, when the NBA games, I mean, when the Atlanta Hawks play a game, the vast majority of people in the crowd are white Atlanta business dudes um, who. More or less, probably voted for Trump. When the Atlanta Dream take the court, their audience is incredibly different. I mean, those two teams are related in organizational structure uh, in a lot of different ways, and yet the people who come to their games are very are very different. And the people who come to the Dream games aren't going to be alienated by radical protest messages in the same way that the white businessmen might be um, alienated by the same messages if Trey Young starts um, making those kinds of statements. And so to the WNBA's credit, they understood their market and they understood that, they, that if they could financially get away with it, then they had, no, that they had a moral responsibility to use that platform. And, you know, I say that, but to be fair, the NBA, while it took a lot of its lead from the WNBA, they haven't done terribly with that either. I mean, Adam Silver has done a really good job of letting the players in the new CBA make a lot of these statements. They played under a Black Lives Matter banner in the bubble. You know, they, they have allowed some of that as well, not to the extent of the WNBA, but the WNBA has really kind of shown the way for how these protest efforts can work in a league if you know your audience and you know that, and you're able to kind of tailor your message to the core of the people who are going to be watching.
0: You know, one of the, one of the things I loved about your book is is, you know, it's not, you don't write simply how culture impact of the game or it's not just how game impact, it's it's the interplay between the two right between american culture and and the game of basketball and how they they play off of each other and there's been a lot written about how american basketball culture has influenced the rest of the world right and and we often t- point to the the 92 dream team as the, you know the, the the biggest event in in that regard um and of course, the last few the last few decades, we've had a tremendous influx of foreign, you know, international talent into the NBA. Um, in fact, the NBA just announced the three finalists for MVP this year, and they are Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, and, and Giannis Antetokounmpo, all foreign players. Um, it's very possible Luka Doncic could be fourth on that list. Um, so my question for you is, how has, we've heard so much about how the NBA and basketball culture has impacted, you know, American basketball culture has impacted the rest of the world. How has basketball and the basketball talent from the rest of the world impacted basketball culture here in the United States?
1: It's a great point. It's one of the, it's one of the two things that, um, the two modern things that I don't talk about very much in the book that. That if I had it back, I would talk about more. I would talk about that. And I would talk about video game culture. Two things that um, uh, I think drive a lot of the modern game. Um, Right. So after 92, after the Dream Team, these other leagues start getting really good. And we benefit from their talent. Not only do we have new faces into the game but we have very different styles of play that largely come from overseas models. It's the Spanish league that really started sending their centers out to the three point line and playing this kind of wide open game where big men start shooting from outside. And we don't really see traditional centers in in the kind of the traditional Bill Russell sense anymore. And, and so not only are these foreign players coming in and giving us new talent they've really changed the way basketball is played in the modern era now the the other side of that the the critical side uh, of that is that some critics have argued that the growth of the foreign player in the nba is really a way to create that 12th seat at the end of the bench. That is, mm. It is a way for NBA teams to promote white players um, to drive new revenue. I don't think that's intentional in any way, but certainly it creates... Um, a new racial dynamic in the game that hasn't been there prior to the turn of the 21st century. And so in new discussions about the way we view race and basketball in the way we play a more open game built on three point shooting and without a real traditional number five and in just the, the multicultural way we do things. I mean, the fact that the USA regularly loses international competitions in the game that we invented. Um, I think, I think says a lot about uh, what foreign players have been able to do uh, to change the game of basketball really for good. Yeah.
0: Um, One, one last thing I wanted to ask you about too is, you know, we, 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 you've talked about corruption in the game and there's this constant battle to combat corruption. Um, of course, in in the past, just handful of years, there's been a move towards acceptance and and even legalization of sports gambling. Um, Adam Silver wrote, I, I believe, an op ed in the New York Times about the benefits, really, of of, of gambling on basketball. Um, do you think that will have a this this trend will have a significant impact on basketball culture, or, or was it so already all was it already so embedded in the sport?
1: No, I this. think it's going to have a, 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 I think legalization has a big impact Adam Silver is also the guy who stumped for putting advertisements on jerseys, which is a, a kind of another version of that, something that people had always steered away from because they were afraid of what kind of corporate interest on jerseys might do and the n b a because of its roots and because of its association with urbanity, ethnicity, and immigration. And because it was largely defined in its early years by various scandals that included the mafia and included gambling, has always been put at a disadvantage um, in relation to other sports. It has always been seen as something different, something other. By legalizing gambling, you take a lot of that away. And I think one of Adam Silver's interesting points was, would the nineteen, you know, would the betting scandals of the fifties and sixties have happened if betting was legal? Um, and I think it's a fair question to ask. I think that by legalization, what you're doing is legitimizing something that has often been seen as a scarlet letter on the game, and since it is also being performed in other sports as well. All of a sudden, the NBA is no longer an exception to a rule. It is rather just part of the mainstream. And with that legalization in place, there are also protections to regulate it and to make sure that players are not participating in a way that might ultimately act as a detriment to the game. So I'm actually for it. I think, I think, I think it's a good idea, um, and I think it helps only grow the socialization of the game into what we think of as the modern sports mainstream.
0: All right, Tom, I will get you out of here with one final question that I'd like to ask all my guests. Um, but first, again, the name of Tom's book is Hoops, A Cultural History of Basketball in America. Um, I, I think you could get a sense by hearing this podcast. It's it's really some fascinating analysis and um, documentation of of the development of, of this game that so many people like myself love. Um So, Tom, here's my question. What is your all-time favorite sports book?
1: My all-time favorite sports book? uh, Probably David Halberstam's Breaks of the Game. I think uh, that's probably number one on my list. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Ken uh, Dryden's uh the shot um no excuse me the game uh because i'm a big hockey fan as well um i think the game is one of the greatest sports books ever written um i think those are probably my favorite too all right yeah i Breaks the, of the game by can't go wrong with those yeah and the shot by ken dryden what do you normally hear? What what are some of the ones that people normally say?
0: Oh man, you get all over the place. Um, the the I think the the one I've heard the most, um, and it may be the only one I've heard. I did get one other breaks of the game. Um, I think the one I've heard the most is is Moneyball. By Michael Money Lewis. Ball. Okay.
1: Yeah. Oh, I should also mention that I was thinking of uh, um, American sports books. My favorite sports book of all time, though, just kind of generally sports is not an American sports book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is Beyond the Boundary by C.L.R. James. It's about cricket in, in Trinidad. Oh, wow. Um, so technically, as far as sports total, that's my favorite sports book. But as far as American sports books, I'd say Breaks of the Game and the sh- and, and the Game by I.
0: All right. Great stuff. Well, Tom, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. As as I said, I love the book and um, it was really fun to, to talk about it with you.
1: I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.